I'm Jason Vanish, and this is the Practical Product Podcast. We aim to be the most actionable podcast on product management you've ever heard. Every episode, we give you key tips and advice to help you be a better product manager by learning from me and the other great guests we have on the show. And today, we're doing something a little different. Uh, today, we'll call this Trending Topics. I have three topics that I want to talk about that are happening now that I have some strong opinions about and that I think are important for product managers to consider. And so those three topics are, we're entering a bundling phase in most markets. And the question is, why is that happening now? And what does that mean for product managers? And what are the tactics that you can use to succeed knowing this? Number two is I wanna talk about a bad habit and personality trait I see in too many product managers. These are things, if you do them, you should probably stop and I'll try to explain why and what to do about it. And then the third one is, I wanna talk about something I think people are getting wrong about AI. Uh, there's a lot of talk, a lot of projection about the future, and I think that some people have some misconceptions that we need to reconsider uh, because I think they have some very, very bad consequences if we head down that road. So let's dive in. First, unbundling. I saw a tweet from my old boss and mentor, Heaton Shaw, that really hit home. It said, the great rebundling of B2B SaaS products is here and it's going to be here for a while. Product managers, it's time to build. That got me thinking and it asked, asked the question to myself, why now? And what I realized was there's really just two factors at play that really kind of make it happen. First, there are so many tools it's hard to manage. And second, the economic situation means that people are looking for cost savings. And so the incentive is there to bundle because, hey, we've got too many systems, we can't keep track of it all, and we need to save some money. Well, guess what? If you're using 10 tools to accomplish something and there's one mega tool that does all of it, I can pretty much guarantee that all those seat licenses added up for the individual tools is going to be more than the deal that one company who bundles it all for you will charge you to do it all in one. And so that means it's very easy in today's environment to do that. So if you think about it, you know, this has been coming for a long time. We've been in a long unbundling phase because as SaaS took over starting about 10 to 15 years ago, all that old clunky heavyweight software where you literally had CD-ROMs and disks that you had to plug into your computer to get a version of, and then you wouldn't get another version for maybe a year or two, got chipped away by SaaS over the years because it was better to have regular software updates on the web browser. And certainly as the web became more powerful and we all had better internet speeds, more technology became possible. Obviously, if you had the internet dial up with AOL in like 1995, you couldn't do a Zoom no matter how much you wanted to. So new technology and better technology has enabled more and more things to become SaaS and you can do more and more things. Then you saw with the explosion of Slack and it's bottoms up kind of sales process, product-led growth really took over and led to the expansion of so much of what we all call bottoms up SaaS, where individual employees could use the tools that they choose. And user interfaces became better and better because of it, because you wanted to make something that people could actually use because they were the ones who were also then potentially putting in a low cost credit card. And of course, because of this happening, People generally were asking for forgiveness, not permission to use these tools, which of course is a nightmare for uh, IT departments, but they had to kind of go along with it because if people were actually using the tool and they weren't using the big clunky old systems, then they were like, okay, we've got to do this. But something had to give. At some point, the tide was going to turn and here in 2022, it did. And what was that? Well, 
It was the economic trigger. The pressure has been on to consolidate for a while, but not enough to resist existing forces of employees using what they wanted until now. Now we have companies stressed about inflation, economic uncertainty. We've seen waves of layoffs at a lot of companies. And so that creates a big push for consolidation because first we had too many tools for IT to manage. They hated it. It was a huge security risk and it was an info management nightmare. They always hated it, but they had to tolerate it until now where budget cuts come into play. Because the fact is, I think we can all understand that you'd rather cut a tool or a whole bunch of tools than an employee's job. And so there's an easy case to be made right now with decision makers saying, hey, this big system does all the these things that we're paying all these other random tools to do. Let's cancel all the other tools and consolidate on this. We'll pay for the highest package at this one product, but then everything's in one login. I don't have to manage cross compatibility. And from an IT and security perspective, it's much better. But the big driver is the cost savings because everybody's trying to stretch a dollar when a dollar doesn't go as far with inflation and we're all not sure economically what comes next. So if the economy was strong, I think employees might fight it. But now I think we all can kind of understand it, even if we begrudgingly only use the systems we're told to because we have no choice. And I can also tell you, I've seen this data firsthand with my SaaS startup Lighthouse. We make software that helps people be better managers. And we've increasingly found more and more companies are switching from using us along with a suite of other tools to consolidating on one giant HR platform. I've been floored by some of the cases where companies with even less than 100 employees are buying the kinds of big clunky tools that I know they would never even remotely considered in the past. And I think the only reason that's happening, and from my conversations when I've talked to churn customers, the only reason it's happening is because of this consolidation desire, both that mix of, hey, we have too many tools and we're going to save 50%. That and is really powerful and it's the combination, the two that is irresistible. So no matter how big and clunky these systems are, companies are giving the big, big all-in-one tools a shot based on the combined spending and savings and having something that's quote unquote good enough for everything. And so if we are in a consolidation phase, if you are seeing changes in the reason customers churn towards this kind of consolidation reasoning, then as a product manager, there's a few things you should do. First, when you're building your product, you need to look for breadth over depth and feature building. Because in a consolidation phase, especially, you'll be competing against a lengthy feature list where one system that does everything gets the purchase and there is no second place. That means that if your direct competitor you're losing to has 17 features and you have 12, you need to look at how you can minimally satisfy those other five things if you wanna keep competing because companies aren't going to want to have to allocate more budget to find another tool that can solve this other piece of a problem. But that's not the only thing you can do. If you can't build all of those, Think about how you can take advantage of integrations and APIs to round out your whole product. So if you can integrate with a tool that then gets you a couple of those checklists and you can bundle yourselves together to sell as one, then that can work just as well. You can also look at your own API and how you might be able to allow others to build on top of what you're doing as another viable strategy to expand your functionality faster than your own product team can build. But the important thing is, however you cobble together partnerships, integrations and APIs of yours and other people's, you're trying to build out breadth here. You need to checklist as many features as possible to meet the complete market need. Because right now in a consolidation phase, in a bundling phase, 
You need to meet all of their needs, not just better than most at a few certain important things. If you're even smaller, then one of the things to think about is to build for the right ecosystems. Microsoft and Salesforce are two of the biggest heavy hitters in all of tech. If you want to consolidate on some other system that you can piggyback off their usage, then you should go with the absolute biggest ones. So companies like Microsoft know that bundling and giving away another company's margins is a huge opportunity. Just look at their growth versus Slack. The only reason they can have those crazy charts where you compare the two of them and see the difference is because they're literally giving teams away to everyone who buys Outlook. And so you have to realize that someone else may be bundling what you do. And so if you can play in their field and integrate as one of their partners, then you can get access to the entire ecosystem to still fill in gaps and cracks that they haven't, which will then keep you alive in an otherwise competitive space where you'll lose out. So the one thing to keep in mind though is, is that Slack is beautiful to build on. Microsoft Teams is the antichrist of software development. I lost two engineers on my team building a Microsoft Teams integration. So I'm not gonna tell you this is easy. Your engineers will groan at building on Salesforce. They will not like building with Microsoft APIs. So choose wisely when and how you choose to do this, but it is another option to build in the ecosystems that are going to survive this consolidation and bundling phase. Another thing you can also do and that you should absolutely be doing it in tough times is tightening and building stronger relationships with your sales and CS teams. You need to know how you're winning and losing deals. You need to find out how account management is doing, trying to retain key accounts and what they're saying and they're thinking about. They are more eyes and ears that can work on your behalf. And so you need to be working closely to find out, wow, we're losing all the deals in this vertical because we don't have feature X. Okay, what is the fastest way to do that? Can you build something that will meet that need? Or can you integrate or partner with somebody who can provide that? Either way, you need to build that relationship so you have more of that signal and understanding so that you build the right things to make that a complete feature set so that you are a bundle yourself. And then finally, you wanna understand your secret sauce and your champions. What's unique about your company? What do you do better than most? What critical thing do you deliver that will have someone with influence at a customer banging the table to keep you? If you don't have one of those things, you better get it. If you do, make sure that feature stays great and don't let that goose that lays the golden eggs get hurt. But by understanding what it is that is that sizzle on your steak that makes it so that people are like, man, we couldn't live without you. Or man, if we ever had to stop using you, you know, it would cost me 40 hours a week of work across my team. You know, find out what those things are so that sales can hammer that home to make sure you get the deal. And so account management can make sure every single customer is set up to use that killer feature. You need, it's all hands on deck to fight this kind of bundling risk. And so you have to think about what the best tactics are for what you have available as a team. A small startup is going to have different tactics than a larger company that has more resources to put towards problems and opportunities. Have you mastered the most important skills of product management? Do you know how to interview customers to learn the right things or how to write a product spec your engineers and designers actually want to read? Product management comes in dozens of flavors, yet there are a lot more ways to do things wrong than get the results you hoped. And doing things the wrong way can lead to frustrated teammates, failed experiments, resentful and disappointed stakeholders, and a feeling that you're not becoming the product manager you dreamed of. Being a great product manager requires mastering the fundamentals by learning the most important skills and putting them into practice for every project you own. You set yourself up to ship the right products and get more wins. I've taken the best skills and knowledge I've learned 
over the last 12 years as a product manager who was lucky enough to learn from some of the best in Silicon Valley, and I've created a 10-week course to help you learn them too. These lessons focus on the most important skills that set you up for success. The program includes templates, guides, and a community so we can all grow together. If you'd like to join us in leveling up your product management skills, go to becustomerdriven.com slash course and reserve your spot for the next cohort of the program. Again, that's becustomerdriven.com slash course. Next, we need to talk about something I noticed from time to time that bugs me a lot that PMs will do. It's two words. It's self-deprecation. If you ask some product managers for a single image to describe their work, it would be the this is fine meme with the dog surrounded by fire. And look, there are times when there will be hard challenges and feel like your product is in crisis, but that shouldn't be your whole identity and it shouldn't be what you say and tell other people product management is like. If you feel like your job is nothing but this, then you should think about if that's really what you want in your career and life. I know plenty of happy product managers who have plenty of good times to go with the occasional crisis. And more importantly, I'm a very firm believer in you get the energy you put out in the world. If you're crappy on yourself and your profession and saying that a work environment that craps on you all day is okay, then guess what you're going to get? You're going to get more of that. So if you want a more positive work environment, a place that isn't just this is fine kind of memes, there are plenty of jobs out there worth seeking and prioritizing. And I think it also, even if you're going to stay at your current job, even though sometimes it feels like that this is fine mean, you have to realize that that attitude sends a bad message to everyone around you, especially if you're, you're constantly self-deprecating about yourself, the product you work on, or your company. First of all, it makes you sound like a victim and potentially sets you up to become welcome to more abuse. Because, hey, if you're crappy on the product, why can't I? If you're crappy on your job, why can't I crap on you and relate it to your job? It also creates a self-fulfilling prophecy where you look for confirmation of this negative way of living as a product manager. You want to instead build for and focus on the positive direction. What are the wins that you can start racking up to make you feel better about work? What are the things you can go to your boss and request or changed about how you do things so you enjoy work more? Don't just sit there and take it. Don't let the whole world burn down around you and just say, well, I guess we're going to lose the house. And then the other thing is, is that it sends a bad external message to other PMs that this is the job. No one should be in a profession where the mindset is, man, what a terrible place to work. Man, it stinks. My profession is awful. Man, I just can't stand all these things we do. And guess what? This is just how it is. You know, it's it's no different when you hear than you hear people talk about how terrible marriage is. Well, maybe it's terrible for them, but that doesn't mean everybody who's married is unhappy. And having that mindset that it just must be bad for everybody is just a toxic way to look at things and is discouraging to other people who hear it. And so you don't want to be that kind of representative for our profession. So look, maybe in some cases this is a job, but then you should ask yourself if that's what you really want. Do you really want to work at a company where product managers are mistreated and where the product is not given respect and not given the opportunity to shine? But it all starts with your mindset and you need to fix that. And then you expand that to a positive frame with your team. You can control how you and your team feel about it. You can build product you're proud of. You can fix customer problems and delight them regardless of what's going on in the rest of your organization. And if that doesn't happen, if you're not seeing those kinds of positive shifts in your company, then ask yourself if that's the company you want to be at. Because even in crisis, you can enjoy and have passion for your work. But imagine if the dog in the this is fine meme was instead rallying others to get water to put out the fire. 
action is so much better than lamenting and just sitting there ironically drinking your coffee and waiting for the whole thing to burn down. Be a part of the solution because remember, as product managers, we are the people who rally others without any real authority, only persuasion to get people to do other things. And so don't let your identity be that this is fine puppy. Instead, be part of the solution and don't be any type of self-deprecating meme. Are you a self-taught product manager? Do you feel like there's gaps in your skills holding you back? Are you comfortable teaching others how you do product management? The fact is no one learns product management in school. You have to learn by cobbling together resources, reading books and blog posts, seeking out mentors, and learning on the job through trial and error. I've been there. I was a self-taught PM too, and I was lucky to learn from some of the best product minds in Silicon Valley. Now I wanna teach you everything I've learned. To do that, I've written blog posts, shared knowledge on these podcasts with great guests, and now I'm doing a limited number of coaching and consulting engagements. If you're looking to level up as a product leader and wanna tune up you and your product team skills, then go to becustomerdriven.com and sign up for a free call to discuss your needs and how I may be able to help you. Again, go to becustomerdriven.com. All right, so my third and final point, I got to pick a bone with a guy who many people have read his book, Sapiens. I personally hate that book. I think it's got way too many historical inaccuracies that people don't realize. And more importantly, the direction that Yuval Noah Harari has gone since is downright toxic and evil. And so I want to play a clip from one of his talks about workplace automation and something he calls the useless class. And when you look back in history, people constantly compare the threat of automation and job loss in the 21st century to what happened in the 20th century. In the 20th century, you saw automation in agriculture, so lots of unemployed farm workers moved to working in industry. And then when automation reached the industries, uh, they moved to working as cashiers in, at Walmart. But in those cases, what happened was that people lost low-skilled jobs and transferred to other low-skilled jobs. Moving from being an agricultural worker to a, working in some car factory in Detroit, you moved from one low-skilled job to another low-skilled job. When you lost your job at the Detroit car factory and got a new job as a cashier at Walmart, again, you moved from a low-skilled job to a low-skilled job. But the next stage, if, what, if, if, if the next stage means I'm losing my job at 45 as a cashier at Walmart, and now there is an opening as a software engineer at Google designing virtual worlds, this is going to be much more difficult than moving from the car factory to, the, to Walmart. And it's very likely that even if there are new jobs, most of the unemployed masses will not be able to make the transition. So we may be facing in the 21st century a completely new kind of inequality which we have never seen before in human history. On the one hand, the emergence of a new upgraded elite of superhumans enhanced by bioengineering and brain-computer interfaces and things like that. And on the other hand, a new massive useless class, a class that has no military or economic usefulness, and therefore also no political power. I don't know how you felt about that clip, but for me, the ignorance of Harari is staggering. 
I think he's oversimplifying things and has such an out-of-touch view of reality, it's disgusting to me. Let's talk about a few things he misses. First, these changes always happen. Like he hinted at with the Industrial Revolution, there are always times where a new invention means that an old thing is no longer needed. And every time this happens, it turns out there are people just like Harari who are super worried about it, but are wrong. Let's look at just one example, the car. So before cars, people rode horses everywhere. If you wanted to cover a distance, you needed a horse or you were walking. And because of horses, there was a whole industry around the fact that so many people would own and keep horses. So a few of the jobs that turned out to be really important were poop shovelers. Yeah, I know, kind of gross. No one wants to talk about that. But there were people whose job was to just take away horse manure because unlike the exhaust of a car, uh, horses are animals. And so their process was different. You also, of course, had to provide horse feed and there was an entire supply chain to feed them as well as things like water troughs outside the old saloon to feed those horses and people had to make those as well. And of course, veterinarians were important because just like you take your car to the mechanic, your horse could get sick and you would need a veterinarian to take care of them. And so cars took away all those jobs. We needed way fewer vets. Poop shovelers didn't need to shovel anymore, thankfully. Horse feed went way down in demand because again, people didn't need them. But the important thing is when all of these changes happen, there's always new jobs created. So for instance, with cars, you needed car dealers, you need mechanics to fix the cars. All the parts of cars need manufactured. You know, you only really needed horseshoes for your horse and a saddle, but for cars, man, think about all the different parts in your car. Every single one of those was made by somebody somewhere uh, in, a, in a factory and then assembled somewhere else and then sent, sent to a car dealer where you eventually bought it. You also need things like car washes, windshield repair, gas stations, and the entire oil industry all came from that. So the net of cars was actually more jobs created than we had for horses. And that's just one example. Another example that you probably don't realize now, but I learned about when I read about the history of the computer. Back in the day, there were floors and floors and floors of accountants and bookkeepers at every large company. They were how you actually figured out how these big companies were making money and how to keep the books was literally, keeping the books was literally a physical thing. And then the spreadsheet came along. And with the rise of computers, I think we can see how many new jobs were created and how informations and services were democratized. And the question is, how many businesses could now be started today that would be impossibly difficult in the past because of this? That net progress of computers was huge. And yeah, maybe some bookkeepers lost their jobs because they weren't needed anymore because of the spreadsheet, but how many of them became 10 times more powerful because they learned how to leverage the spreadsheet? Suddenly what would take an entire floor's people's work to do could be done by one person. And now that one person could do more sophisticated things, which has allowed a lot of these companies to grow faster and do bigger and better things because it's easier to get their hands wrapped around what they do. And so over and over again, we see people fearful because they see the jobs that are going away, but they lack the vision and the foresight to recognize all the jobs that are going to be created and all the new things that people will be able to do that they can't do now. I think a great example of this is I saw a tweet the other day where someone said, hey, there's all this hype around these AI copywriting tools. Who here is using them and how do you use them? 
And I think when you look for examples that people will cite about where AI is most used today, other than Dolly making cool pictures, which don't necessarily do anything besides create great conversation on, on Reddit and Twitter and places like that, the one that actually has a high growth startup behind it, they're making lots of revenue, is this, the startups that are selling copywriting AI. And it turns out in this entire tweet thread, there was not a single mention of someone saying, oh yeah, we fired our you know product marketer because the copywriting was better. What instead you saw was a whole bunch of marketers saying, it's great for idea generation. It's great for generating headlines. It's great for giving me alternative copy for advertising. And so it's all these things that augment someone's job instead of replace it. No one's losing their job. They're doing their job faster. And I think every single one of us can relate to the fact that our to-do list is always longer than what we have time to do, which means that when you build these tools, when you build them out, what we're going to be doing is allowing people to reach different parts of their to-do list and allow them to move faster and do more interesting things. We saw this also in software engineering. Some of you uh, who are a bit older will remember there was a time where there wasn't AWS. You couldn't just spin up a server. There was a time where literally you had to have engineers who did nothing but manage their own servers. And at certain scales, some companies will do this on their own as well for cost savings and blah, blah, blah. But the important thing is there was a time where if you wanted to wanted to do this, you had to manage it all internally, which means that either salary was going to somebody who needed to do this full-time or part of their job, and now that salary couldn't be spent on someone else or the time they spent on it could be spent building new features. And so all these systems freed up people to build new cool stuff. And so you have to realize, again, that most of these new innovations, while they may quote-unquote replace jobs, they're not going to make it so that there are fewer jobs total. There's actually new opportunities New things can be done. Things that were just hanging off the bottom of the to-do list become possible for people to do. It makes people get more done in a day. It makes them more productive, not out of a job necessarily. And even if they are out of a job, then equally important is that there will be new opportunities created that they may be able to get. And let's talk about that for a second, okay? There are plenty of jobs to fill. Okay, first of all, we have great organizations like Bloom Tech that are happily training people from all kinds of low-skilled labor and lower-paying jobs to be allowed, allowing them to break into tech and get into software engineering in a variety of ways. That training is priceless, and you know that model will only expand and become more successful as the tools get better around it. Also, keep in mind, how many of us are self-taught in tech? I'm a product manager by trade. I'm a founder by trade. You can't learn those in school. I tried. And, and very little of what I learned in school, even when I got an entrepreneurial master's degree, very little of it actually applies. I had to be self-taught a lot. And those tools for self, being self-taught are way better now than they were 10 years ago. So more and more, there's going to be these opportunities for being self-taught. And I think that you're going to see more and more where people are going to find find new ways to continue to learn new fields because when there were no mechanics when cars were invented people had to learn they had to figure it out and there was nobody who had to figure it out so that tinkering became who became the early mechanics and so we'll have the same thing here whatever people are tinkering are going to have their opportunity to break in because there is nobody else you know it's like the old joke that uh you know in the mid 20 teens 
people wanted somebody with 10 years or 20 years of Bitcoin crypto development experience and the field hadn't existed for that long. The same thing's gonna happen here. The tinkerers are gonna come in when something's brand new and everybody can break in because the playing field is level and flat because no one's an expert at it. But even more so, the true ignorance of Harari comes through when you start to think about the labor jobs he complains about. There are a lot of jobs out there that no robot will take for a very long time. If you live in a place like Austin, Texas, like I do, you know how hard it is to get services for your home. I have friends constantly sharing issues with everything from getting a plumber to pool cleaning, to lawn maintenance, to basic handyman services. It turns out our, our education system has trumpeted the importance of college to the point where a lot of manual labor jobs are looked down upon and people don't, don't take them, which means that there is an undersupply of them, which means that there are plenty of opportunities for people to get trained in those areas and also do those jobs. It's not that everybody needs fun funnel to any, any one of those, but there's, uh, there's tons of opportunity there. There's tons of jobs that are left unfilled and unskilled labor. And if you follow anybody like Mike Rowe, he constantly talks about this problem where the job openings are in the millions. So while that won't be the only solution, it's a significant part of it. If you're talking about literally potentially one to 5 million people can be filtered into those kinds of jobs. And then finally, and most importantly, why I'm even bringing up this rant with uh, you all on this podcast is that we as product managers can be part of the solution. It's our ability to make easy to use interfaces will help make some of these tools and AI systems more accessible to people to interface with. That means bringing your beginner's mindset as a product manager. It means thinking about your self-awareness to think, hey, how would a new user who's never used something like this before interface with it? How are they doing it? Let me find somebody and put it in front of them and see what happens. This is why they talk about things like the mom test or having your grandfather try and use it. Have people who are lower tech use your tools to make sure that they're easy and accessible. And that will make it so that the learning curve for new people trying to break in isn't as steep. I remember, for instance, in the old days, MailChimp used to be, and this is big past tense, but used to be 10 years ago, MailChimp was the gold standard for usability. I could have somebody who's never used software before, fresh out of college, and put them and say, hey, go make a campaign and do this. And they would figure it out because the interface was so easy to use, it made it very approachable. Now, many tools have the same abilities that MailChimp has now, but Back then, it wasn't the case. And so if you can build your tools to have the same approachability, you're doing a big part to help contribute to making everything more accessible and making, making sure there is no useless class because anybody can use what you build. And so most importantly, I want to remind you, Harari is an example of what I call an intellectual monster. To use phrases like the useless class is the first step to genocide and should be condemned fully, especially in intellectual conversations as we all develop technology people will be using every day. You should never talk down to your customers. You should never talk down to your users. And you should never think that people are useless. Did you know that part of Nazi eugenics called some people quote unquote useless eaters? Do not fall for those false pity ideas from false intellectuals. There will always be jobs. And every new technology creates new jobs and opportunities as much as it may eliminate a few old ones. We as product managers have the opportunity to be a part of the solution and create the future that helps everyone and does not consider anyone useless. So anywhere you hear people start to bring that kind of mindset like Harari, shut them down. It is evil. It leads to terrible things. And most importantly, as product managers and product leaders, we owe it to everybody to do our part 
to build tools and systems and embrace AI in a way that recognizes that we can make things more democratized and accessible to people, not pull up the gates like Harari thinks, which is evil. I'm sorry to end on such a negative note here on the Practical Product Podcast, but I think it's very important that we think about that. So to recap, people are wrong in AI who think that everyone is going to be out of jobs. Using phrases like the useless class is pure evil and should be shut down as soon as it's brought up. And you should embrace the fact that there are exciting new opportunities that you as a product manager can lead the way to creating tools that make everyone's lives better and create new working opportunities for people who may be displaced by other technology. Two, a bad habit and personality trait that I see too many managers have is that self-deprecating, this is fine mindset. Do not bring that into work. It will bring down your whole product team and you have the opportunity as a product leader to make change and bring a healthy, positive culture to your team. And that's the one you want to bring. That's the kind of people that engineers love working with. And finally, what we talked about at the beginning, we're entering a bundling phase in most markets. You need to be prepared as a product manager and adjust your product strategy accordingly. If you're not already talking internally with you and other product managers in your company and the sales team about how your strategy is going to adapt to that, then I highly encourage you as soon as you get off this call to start talking or get off this podcast. Uh, I highly encourage you to have that conversation with your teams to see both what data are you seeing in the market? Is this happening in yours yet? Or do you see signs that may start happening soon and what your plan either will be if this hits or if it's already happening, start talking strategically about how you want to set up your roadmap. This is Q4. You want to hit the ground running in Q1. And so the only way to do that is to have this conversation now about, about how bundling may affect you and your teams and how you want to set your strategy based on it. So this has been the Practical Product Podcast. Hope you learned some things and got some food for thought. We'll have some further reading in the show notes for you, as well as a link to some of the tweets and videos uh, that we quoted in this episode. Until next week, I'll see you later. <laughs>